I think the most underrated skill we all need in today's world, emotional intelligence. What is it and how does it benefit our mood? Emotional intelligence is the key to successful negotiations. After all, everything in life is a negotiation. Tune in for more details only here on the People Scientist Podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast, where every week I arm us with some scientific evidence so we can all lead the healthy lives we want to live. This week on episode 57, I combine neuroscience with psychology to talk about the science of labeling negative emotions as a way to regulate them. This can be incredibly useful not only for our mental health, but in terms of emotional intelligence communicating with others, and even being useful in negotiations. The information I have to share with you today is rooted in neuroscience. So come along with me and let's jump down this science rabbit hole together. Negative emotions like fear, sadness, guilt, stress, anxiety, exhaustion, etc., are known to be regulated by particular emotional regions in our brain. Interestingly, many studies show that labeling of these emotions is a form of controlling or regulating them. This can be very useful in our ability to reduce our negative emotions, but this is also very useful for our ability to connect and communicate with others. Our ability to read others' emotions and identify them is a huge component to being emotionally intelligent. If we can state our observations of our own negative emotions or how we may impact others, or to state others' emotions in a non-threatening way, it can improve communication, ability for negotiation, and therefore in the end getting what we want. Now none of this will matter though if we don't use the right tone of voice. The majority of the time, the tone of our voice is more important than what we actually say. It all comes down to psychology and neuroscience. Now, let's get into the details. Torre and Lieberman in the journal Emotion Review in 2018 wrote a great review on labeling emotions as a way to control emotions. Putting feelings into words is called affect labeling. Normally, when we think of how to regulate our emotions or someone else's emotions, we may think it is something that will take a lot of effort. Like other techniques might include avoidance, changing our perspective on a situation, or convincing ourselves that something isn't as bad as it really is. 
Those are common techniques that we may use to regulate our negative emotions. We probably would not think then that focusing on our feelings without trying to change them could achieve the same effect. But a lot of research has shown labeling emotions without avoiding or trying to change them can be just as effective as other methods of emotion regulation. Now, what do I mean by label emotions? I mean by saying, I feel anxious. I feel angry. I feel guilty. I feel sad. I feel exhausted. Not only just identifying the emotion, but also speculating as to why you feel those emotions. I feel sad because. I feel angry because. That is labeling emotions. Now, stereotypically in movies and TV shows, you know, when you see a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or therapist counseling their patient, and the patient is lying on that stereotypical couch, and the therapist is sitting in their chair, legs crossed, with their glasses on, and writing notes in their book, what is the most common question that the therapist asks their patient? How does that make you feel? Right? That's what we always hear, the famous line in movies and TV shows. A question is asked for so many reasons and really is a common question that's asked in these scenarios. And the one reason why that question, how does that make you feel, comes up is because, well, first of all, it allows the person or the patient to open up and talk more. But the other reason is because it allows the person to label their emotions. Now, in general, there have been a lot of studies where participants were given images or movies that were emotionally very charged, and the participants were either asked to just passively observe these images, or they were asked to label their emotions and how they felt after viewing them. Now, in general, when the participants were asked to label how they felt, it seemed to reduce the distress in response to seeing these aversive or negative images and reduce the unpleasant feelings. But at the same time, it also, instead of diminishing the negative feelings, it seemed to heighten the pleasant feelings in response to positive images. So it's interesting, labeling our emotions seems to decrease the bad ones and increase the good ones. For example, Lieberman in 2011 conducted four different clinical trials. And in one of the trials, they recruited 44 individuals, and they showed the participants all very strong negative images, for example, of serious injuries of women crying, of a bank robbery, etc. The participants were asked to rank how they felt on a scale of 1 to 9. Half of them were asked to label how they felt, what emotions they were feeling, and to label their emotions, before rating the strength of their emotions on a scale of 1 to 9. Those who had to label their emotions tended to have a lower score for the strength of their negative response of how they felt. There are many, many studies showing similar findings. So what does this mean? Well, it means if you feel sad and you are able to identify that emotion as being sad, and then you can also identify the reason behind why you feel sad. So I feel sad because. In the end, that may actually make you feel less sad. So how is this possible? What happens to our brain when we choose to think of how we are feeling and when we label our emotions? Well, Costa Freda in 2007 combined a total of 385 clinical trials where the scientists used functional neuroimaging during patients' processing of their emotions. 
The scientists focus particularly on a brain region called the amygdala. Now this brain region, the amygdala, is shaped like an almond and is located in the anterior portion of the temporal lobes of our brain. And it is considered part of the limbic system. This brain region is known to regulate emotions, motivation, and memory. Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or abbreviated fMRI, is a technique used to measure the flow of blood in different brain regions during certain tasks. This blood flow is an indication of how much a brain region is recruited during a task. So in these 385 studies, participants were provided some emotional stimuli, like photos or videos. All emotional imagery were associated with a higher probability of amygdala activity versus than when people were given just neutral stimuli. So the amygdala is activated when we see emotional images. What is really interesting is that the level of attention people gave to their emotions and labeling them, meaning if they paid attention to trying to identify how they felt, then the recruitment of the amygdala was reduced versus when people did not try to identify their emotions. So what does this mean? Well, paying attention to how we feel and trying to define our emotions can reduce the recruitment of our emotional brain region, the amygdala, and therefore potentially explains why labeling our emotions helps us reduce the magnitude or strength of our emotions. In my own personal experience, when I feel overwhelmed with a ton of emotions, I feel comfort in saying exactly what I'm feeling. Like in the past, I may have said, I feel anxious because I do not know what is going to happen. I feel guilty because I'm behind my deadline. I feel angry because of what happened. I feel sad because I can't be with my family. I feel tired because I only slept four hours last night. And 385 studies pooled together showed that doing this, labeling your emotions, can reduce the activity of that emotional brain region, the amygdala. Part of the reason is because the medial prefrontal cortex and other brain regions that are involved in thinking and decision-making may instead be activated when we're trying to label our emotions because we're turning on the logical part of our brain by trying to identify what we're feeling. By turning on these logical thinking brain regions, we are therefore turning down our emotional brain regions or recruiting them less. Like the saying, think with your head, not with your heart. Well, the more accurate saying would be, think with your prefrontal cortex, not your amygdala. But there could be benefits not only in us being able to help regulate our own emotions, but this also works in communication with others and our emotional intelligence. So if we are able to label or identify emotions in a particular non-threatening way, it could be a benefit in communicating. Chris Voss, for example, is a well-known negotiator that has written a book about this topic if you want to read more into it. But he goes into detail as how everything in life is a negotiation. If you want to get a raise in your salary, if you want your spouse or child to do their chores, if you want your student to listen in class, etc., these are all negotiations. So let me give you some examples of how labeling feelings may help in negotiations. Let's say you are working with someone on a project and they are not keeping to the deadlines. They are constantly behind and letting you down. Or your partner, your spouse, your child is not holding up their end of the deal. They're not helping out around the house. We could start off by addressing how they will probably feel or how they'll probably react 
to us just bringing up this situation. This is where emotional intelligence comes into play. Emotional intelligence, I think, is one of the most important skills to have today, and I find it to be a fascinating topic. Everyone in any profession or relationship could benefit from better emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence means our ability to recognize our own and others' emotions, to be able to respond to those emotions in a healthy manner, and essentially it means to have empathy. If you don't think you have empathy or are not very good at reading others' emotions, then you may have to work at it and make it a goal to observe how people react to your words. A lot of times there is more power in listening to others than being the one that's speaking the most. So stop thinking about yourself and think about the other person for a moment. That is what empathy is. Because in the end, thinking about their feelings in truth will wind up benefiting you in your ability to negotiate and communicate better. Ask yourself, how are they reacting to what you're saying? How are they feeling in this scenario? What is their body language? What are their facial expressions? So let's go back to the example I gave where we're in a situation with someone where they're not holding up their end of the deal. They're not meeting the deadline. The first step is to have empathy and to try to put ourselves in their shoes and to identify the so-called elephant in the room, which is the negative emotions that they and we may feel. So for example, if we put ourselves in their shoes when they haven't met the deadline, Chances are, if I did that, I would feel very guilty, like I've let the other person down. I'd probably feel very stressed and overwhelmed with other things, and that's the reason why I couldn't meet the deadline or do the task. Or perhaps I took on too much and I actually don't know how to do the task. And the whole time while I'm having this conversation with the person, that's all I'm going to be thinking about. I'm going to be preoccupied with the fact that I feel guilty. I feel upset. I feel like I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm not really concentrating on what the person is saying. So in order to have an effective conversation and to negotiate and to find a resolution, we have to identify those negative emotions and get them out of the way. So as the negotiator, you could start off the conversation by saying, I know you must feel overwhelmed. It seems like you're very stressed, and I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't want you to feel like you let me down. By saying that, you've addressed the negative emotions, dealt with them, and now both of you can focus on the resolution and to have a successful conversation. Now, by saying these things, it can work both ways, which is interesting. So let's say that in truth, I really did feel like I let the other person down. And they say, I don't want you to feel like you let me down. Okay, that's going to make me feel better. Because they're saying, I don't want you to feel like you let me down. Let's say the opposite. Let's say I really didn't care and I didn't feel like I let them down. I was just stressed and I figured I'll get it to you when I get it to you. If they say to me, I don't want you to feel like you let me down, in a way, it almost brings up the fact or the idea that I have let them down. It's kind of a genius statement because it works whether I feel like I've let them down or not. Because it brings up the idea that I may have let them down, but it's okay if you did. Do you see what I mean? Another important thing to consider is how you as the negotiator could potentially make the other person feel and to address that. 
So they could start off by saying, I know I must seem like I'm being pushy. I know I must seem like I'm being bothersome or asking for a lot. Addressing how you may be coming off as the negotiator can be very effective. I mean, this statement in itself lets them know that we recognize how we may be coming off and that we're taking responsibility for that. So now watch for their reaction to what you said. Their reaction in their head is either going to be, yes, you're right, I do think you're annoying or being bothersome, or the reaction could be, no, 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 you're not being annoying. Either way, those are both good responses because we already either have them agreeing with us or we have them defending us and empathizing with us. Both of those responses are good in a negotiation or communication. So once you've identified the negatives of how you may be making them feel, we can then attempt to label their situation or emotions. We could say, it seems like you are under a lot of stress. It feels like you are overwhelmed. It seems like this task is more complicated than what it seems. For example, those show that we have empathy and that we are considering their feelings and situation. It also causes them to self-label and consider their emotions. Chances are, if someone says to you, it seems like you are stressed, your reaction is going to be, yes, you're right, or we're going to think for a quick second, am I stressed and overwhelmed? Or are we going to think, is that how I seem? Either way, the response is that they're going to agree with you or they're going to start to turn on that logic part of their brain to assess their emotions of how they actually feel. As I mentioned earlier, thinking about our emotions and trying to label them can reduce the recruitment of the amygdala because we are now trying to label how we are feeling. Us recognizing how we are impacting the other and recognizing how they must feel can lead to a disarming effect. They won't feel threatened. And that is the key, a big reason why conversations end short without a resolution is because someone winds up feeling threatened, like their back is up against a wall. And in that scenario, not much will be accomplished. So once we've recognized our potential negative impact on them and then how they must feel in the situation, the next is to motivate the individual. And in order to do that, we could highlight the potential of a negative feeling if we don't complete our task. In this scenario of negotiation, it is more effective to label the potential of negative feelings than to promote the potential of positive feelings. I mean, just think about it. The fear of losing our job is far more likely to keep us up at night versus the excitement of gaining a new job. And that is because fear is a very motivating emotion. Fear activates our amygdala in a far more powerful manner than do positive emotions. I mean, we know this from Costa Freda's meta-analysis of 385 studies. They reported that when people felt fear and disgust, it activated the emotional brain region, the amygdala, far more than when people felt feelings of happiness. Now remember, the amygdala also regulates motivation. That is how fear and motivation are neurobiologically linked. Now, you obviously don't want to make anyone feel threatened or scared, but giving them a legitimate and truthful question could be very effective. For example, we could ask, what happens if we don't meet this deadline? What happens if our project fails? What will happen if you fail this grade? What will happen if we don't pay our bills? 
Let them ponder that question. Them thinking about those questions is what is powerful. Because those questions might elicit a feeling of fear and discomfort. They might think, gosh, if we don't meet this project, maybe I'll lose my job. Maybe I'll get written up. Maybe our relationship will suffer. Maybe we'll get a divorce. Whatever it is, there is probably a feeling of fear associated with that. Now, by making them ponder the possibility of a negative outcome, that is likely more effective than saying something positive, like, we'll get this project done, or it'll feel great when the project is done, or imagine what it'll feel like when we get this project done. And having that negative outcome question is also likely more effective than saying something neutral, like, okay, let me know, or I look forward to hearing back from you. In some scenarios, highlighting the positive positivity may be more beneficial, but that is where emotional intelligence comes into play. That is where your skill of empathy and reading the person will be important. But it is quite amazing of how labeling feelings has the potential to have such a profound effect on our own mood and our ability to communicate with others. Now, the last topic I want to talk about is how none of the stuff I just said will matter if we don't know how to use the tone of our voice properly. The tone of voice is far more important than the words we actually say. For example, I could say in response to you, how am I supposed to do that? Or I can say the exact same words by saying, how am I supposed to do that? The first way I said it likely elicits a threatening feeling. The latter, the, the last way I said it, is more likely to elicit empathy and having that person start to think about how we can actually do the task. My words are more meaningful when I say, how am I supposed to do that? Instead of saying, how am I supposed to do that? I mean, the, when I say it in the threatening way, the person's not even going to be listening to the actual words. They're not even going to be comprehending those words because all they're going to be feeling is the threatening tone of voice. So ending our sentence with a higher tone is more gentle and less threatening than a downward inflection. It is a common conception that people may be more effective at getting what they want if we are forceful and aggressive in a negotiation manner. But in my opinion, and the opinion of others like Chris Voss in today's world, being empathic, thoughtful, and gentle is far more effective in negotiations because it's disarming. And being forceful only the 5% of the time we're needed will be far more effective. Like that saying, you can catch way more bees with honey than you can with vinegar. I mean, in the end, it just comes down to neuroscience and how we respond to the way people say things and to how we regulate our emotions and how we identify our and other emotions. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. The neuroscience of affect labeling or putting feelings into words. Who would have thought that something so simple could have such an impact on our mood and our ability to communicate and negotiate with others. In summary, when we are feeling overwhelmed with emotions, it can be very effective for us to think about exactly how we are feeling and to label our emotions and to, to describe why we may feel that way. Hundreds of studies show that when we label our feelings, it may reduce negative emotions and heighten the positive emotions. And it is likely because when we label our emotions, it can reduce the activity on that emotional brain region, the amygdala, that regulates fear and memory. 
And instead, it can recruit the logical thinking regions of our brain, like the prefrontal cortex. In regard to communicating with others, labeling how someone else may feel in response to us. And number two, identifying how they must feel in the situation. And number three, having them ponder the potential negative outcomes if they fail may be effective ways of communicating and negotiating. For example, by saying, I'm sure you must think I'm the worst partner in the world and that I'm very annoying. And then pause, let them think or respond as there is power in listening and observing. Then continue and say, and it seems like you're under a lot of stress. Again, pause. And then ask, but what will happen if we don't get this done? Those sentences or questions may cause the person to ponder their emotions, to label their emotions, which will allow them to regulate their emotions better, and as a result, is more likely to have a better outcome, better communication, and a successful negotiation. And remember, there's a lot of power in posing the right question or statement, and then listening. It is not always about talking the most, but emotional intelligence is about actively listening and saying thoughtful words. So I hope that this information is as interesting and useful as it was for me, for all of you. Make sure to follow me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or TikTok for more tidbits of information on the week's topic. If you have a choice, I use Instagram the most because I use the story features every week on Instagram. My social media handles will be listed in the description box to this episode. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you like my podcast, or even if you don't like the podcast, then please leave me a review and let me know what you think, because your feedback is very important to me. So I hope you all have a wonderful, safe, and healthy week, and I will meet you back here the same time and same place next week on the People Scientist Podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.